Mariana, what is the problem facing Democrats in Congress right now? Well, Democrats are really in a tough spot. Their status of their majority is really up in the air. That's Mariana Sotomayor. She covers Congress for The Post. Democrats at this point are are trying to make sure they can hold on to the majority. And many members who are called the frontliners because they are the front line of defense to that majority are really starting to question leadership about the path forward for this year. With midterm elections looming, Democrats are looking around for results that they can show to voters. And they may have to get creative. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, January 19th. Today, we're looking at how Democrats are scrambling for a new strategy. And we've got a story about redistricting in Ohio, where a new effort to prevent gerrymandering may have backfired. For Democrats in Congress who are up for re-election later this year, the question right now is, what will they have to show for their two years in the majority come November? This question is especially pressing for the lawmakers known as the frontliners. So the Democratic frontliners, as they're known up here, colloquially on Capitol Hill, they are ones who truly represent usually Trump districts. So districts that Trump won by one, two, sometimes even more is like five percentage points. These frontline members tend to be from states that are usually big battleground states. So ones like Pennsylvania, some names that come to mind are Congresswoman Susan Wild. Speaker, I rise today in support of my bill. Also, Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin over in Michigan. And I'm about to introduce my newest prescription drug bill. You also look at states like Virginia, where we saw a complete Republican wave and takeover at the end of 2020. You have members there like Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger. One of the things that was most notable and disturbing to me was the general acceptance that look at them, look at Congress, of course. And also Elaine Luria, who are really trying to make sure that they're able to keep their seats during the midterm election. So what are these frontline Democrats calling for? The House has only been in session for two weeks and already on day one, their first day back, they met with the number two Democrat in the House, Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, to tell him directly, hey, we really need to start delivering on all of these promises. We've got to the majority. We got a Democratic president because we've been promising Democrats and and those swing voters that we would deliver on a ton of different priorities for them. And we haven't gotten there yet. They're happy with the infrastructure bill, but they really want a lot more. So what we're seeing right now is these frontline members making the ask directly to Hoyer, as well as Speaker Nancy Pelosi saying, maybe we should break up Build Back Better and Mm. pass policies separately. There are some things that they could potentially find, some bipartisan support. They think things like prescription drugs is a huge bipartisan issue that they might be able to shepherd through both the House and the Senate. And by prescription drugs, you mean like efforts to essentially lower the price of of drugs for Americans? That's correct. And it's something that you see across the board. Doesn't really matter your political affiliation, something that people really deal with 
every day. And, you know, Democrats also think the child tax credit, which Americans saw just, you know, a couple of hundred bucks in their paycheck being given out by Democrats, that's been taken away. So we might see a reaction to that now that families realize, oh, I was getting this money. It was helping me, but now I'm not able to get it. How does Senator Joe Manchin feel about this break up, build back better plan? So it's something that hasn't been posed to him yet. A lot of the focus over on the Senate side has been voting rights. And of course, for him, that means, are you going to vote in favor of, you know, eliminating the filibuster in its current form? Of course, he has said time and time again, no, that is not something I'm going to do. And what Manchin has said for a long time is, you know, we should we should take a pause. We should take a breather on Build Back Better. And he's also said maybe we should look at things like the child tax credit, for example. He isn't necessarily against it. Same thing with paid family leave, for example. But he thinks that there could be a bipartisan solution to those two policies. So he may be on board with trying to find a way to get Republicans on board on certain policies, but we don't know for certain if he's totally okay with breaking up the legislation. But we do know he doesn't like the Build Back Better Act in its current form. So if there were a world where you got enough Democrats to support this plan of breaking off certain parts of the Build Back Better Act, what are the chances that any Republicans would sign on to any of those things? Yeah, I mean, that is the big risk. And that's exactly what leadership tells these members. They say, you know, there's no guarantee that Republicans will sign on, especially the closer that we get to the midterm elections. Some of those Republicans may not want to be affiliated with any Democratic bill, any bipartisan bill, even though it might be something that their constituents support. So, you know, I've I've asked Democratic members, I'm like, well, what gives you the idea, right, that Republicans will sign on? And when it comes to things like prescription drugs and child tax credit, they say, well, you know, some Republicans were really just basing this off the fact that they've said in the past that they would be supportive of this measure if you trim this, if you change that. So they would want to start having those conversations now in January rather than in August when everyone is on the campaign trail trying to make their pitch, trying to say this is what we did and try not to highlight what they weren't able to do. So it is pretty risky, but it's something that Democrats want to at least have the green light from leadership to be able to pursue. I think the fact that these discussions are happening now is evidence of how much there seems to be this doomsday cloud currently over the Democratic Party, both because of the outcome of last November's elections in Virginia, for example, um, and also because of how poorly President Biden is polling right now. But I wonder, like, how much can that change between now and November? Ten months seems like a really short time. Sometimes it feels like a really long time. Is there real potential for change here? You know, when I've talked to Democrats all throughout last year, they were saying they were hoping the magic formula was we pass the infrastructure bill. We pass the Build Back Better Act, the two major big policies promised by the Biden administration. And then, you know, we get to a point where maybe in the summer, the economy will be rebounding. It will be much better. The inflation prices that we've seen will start going down. All of those things Americans will be noticing, not to mention the fact they'll be seeing, you know, shovels in the ground with new infrastructure projects in their own communities. That is the kind of momentum Democrats need to be able to go into the final months of the campaign trail and say, look, we've delivered. That has been what they want 
to tell the American public. You put us in office. You've seen the past Republican president, the past Republican majorities in Congress. They weren't able to do much with their own in-party fighting, but we were able to deliver on so much. And whether you feel these effects now, you will feel them in the next couple of years. And remember, oh wait, Democrats were able to do that. That's all in question now because the Build Back Better Act is currently stalled. The economy as of right now hasn't really changed from a couple months ago when those worries started to bubble up. So there really isn't that much time, as as you mentioned, for things to turn around. And not to mention the fact that a lot of it is out of their hands. The economy is not something that can be controlled with a lever, just passing bills. There's things that they can do to address it that can help, but it's not like they can just flip a switch and things become better. So that is really why you were hearing so much of this anxiety from Democrats already. Two weeks into January, two weeks into this legislative session, that Democrats are just telling leadership, we need your help. We need to deliver more. These are some of the proposals that we've come up with to do that. Mariana Sotomayor covers Congress for The Post. Emma Talkoff produced this story. In a news conference on Wednesday afternoon to mark his first year in office, Biden took questions from reporters, many of whom asked about what he so far has failed to get done. Mr. President, <laughs> your spending package, voting rights legislation, they're not going anywhere. So That's true. Is there anything that you are confident you can get signed into law before the midterm elections? Yes, I'm confident we can get uh, pieces, big chunks of the uh, Build Back Better law signed into law. And I'm confident that we can take the case to the American people that the people they should be voting for who are going to oversee whether the elections, in fact, are legit or not, should not be those who are being put up by the Republicans to to determine that they're going to be able to change the outcome of the election. After the break, another key factor affecting how the midterms could go. Redistricting gone wrong again. We'll be right back. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Right now, states all across the country are in the middle of redistricting. Based on the results of the 2020 census, they are redrawing their maps for state legislative and congressional seats, which could have huge implications for how the midterms go this fall. One of the states going through this process right now is Ohio, where last week the state Supreme Court rejected proposed redistricting maps, saying that they were unfair and gerrymandered. What's surprising about this outcome is that these maps were approved by a commission that was supposed to be bipartisan, one that was designed to prevent gerrymandering, but hasn't. This got a grade of F uh, on the fairness scale because it gave a strong partisan advantage to the Republicans. 
That's Dan Baltz. He says that the current redistricting debacle in Ohio tells us a lot about how complicated this has all become in states all across the country and how even the solutions to gerrymandering, these new rules and processes that are supposed to ensure that it all happens fairly, sometimes they still don't work. We went to Dan for a deep dive into what's been going on in Ohio and why the battle over redistricting there is a reminder of how difficult it is to take politics out of what has always been a very political process. This whole process started in 2015 with a ballot initiative in Ohio that was approved overwhelmingly by the voters, 70% approval, to create a new and less partisan process for drawing state legislative lines. The idea was to take it out of the hands of the state legislature, which has traditionally drawn the maps in Ohio and in most places, frankly, and in Ohio where Republican legislators had created a very gerrymandered map that gave them considerable uh, advantage far beyond their traditional vote they get. What happened in Ohio was that this commission ended up producing a set of maps that continued to give uh, Republicans, who still hold the majority in the legislature, it continued to give them a considerable advantage, a partisan advantage. And the state Supreme Court looked at it and looked at what the voters had approved and said to the commission, you failed the test. You did not do what was required of you in producing maps that tended to reflect the partisan balance within the state. And now they have to go back to the drawing boards and try to meet the constitutional test uh, that the Supreme Court has set down for them. For people who don't know, I mean, you talk about partisan gerrymandering, like basically what, what does that mean? Well, partisan gerrymandering is the sort of deliberate drawing of lines to give the advantage to one party or the other. And it's always the party that has the power uh, to mm -hmm. draw the lines. And this has gone on for years. When Democrats have had control of legislatures, they've done it. When Republicans have had control, they've done it. Republicans have been particularly aggressive since the 2010 census because they won a big election in 2010 and therefore had control of a lot of states. And what analysts and public-minded citizens and groups have looked at is the idea of taking it out of the hands of politicians and putting it mm -hmm. into more neutral hands, i.e. into a commission that is made up in a different way than just simply having a legislature do it, which is traditionally how it's done. And that's what they basically came up with for Ohio, right? That this was part of their solution to try to prevent gerrymandering in Ohio to create one of these commissions that was a little bit more independent. Exactly. They did this in a ballot initiative in 2015. And mm -hmm. the idea was that it would require the commission in producing the maps to pay attention to fairness in the districts, not to give an advantage to one party or the other, and to, in some way or another, tend to try to reflect as best they could the statewide vote for legislative seats over a period of time, basically over the previous decade. And in Ohio, it was made up of seven people. It turned out that the five of them are, are Republicans and two of them are Democrats. The two Democrats are from the, the legislature. This commission was tasked with doing that. And, you know, there's been success with 
commissions in different places, but not all commissions are created equal. And the ones that I think have had the most success are commissions where citizens have basically the control. Hmm. So in the case of Ohio, which one is their commission? Do the seven people, are they mostly citizens or are they? No, there are no no citizens on this commission. It's the governor and the state auditor and the secretary of state, three statewide elected officials, all of whom happen to be Republicans, and four members of the legislature, two Republicans and two Democrats. But what's really interesting is that they created this commission, and you would assume that the commission took responsibility or control for producing maps, um, which then they would discuss and debate and, and kind of hash out. But that wasn't the way it happened. It went back to the legislature, and the Republican and Democratic caucuses in the legislature produced their own set of maps. And hmm. understandably, the Republicans' map favored Republicans considerably, and the Democratic map tended to be more favorable to the Democrats. Wait, but what you're describing sounds pretty counter to what it seemed like the whole point of the solution was, is to take the map making out of the hands of politicians so they wouldn't advantage their own party and let a more neutral body come up with it, not just give it back to the people who have been making the maps for a long time. Well, that's true. And in some ways, I mean, the commission was operating under the constitutional changes that had been passed in 2015. The constitutional change in this case did not set up a citizen commission. California has a citizen commission. Colorado has a citizen commission. Ohio and other states that have redistricting commissions that are intended to be somewhat more bipartisan, nonetheless are still in the hands of elected officials. All seven members in Ohio were elected officials. But as I say, there was no independent staff of the commission that produced the maps. It was it was legislature. So in that sense, it certainly went against what you would think of as the spirit, if not the letter of the law or of the constitutional changes. And I think that's where it, it went awry. I mean, the other thing that was striking was the the degree to which the maps that Republican legislators came forward with fully reinforced the advantages that the Republicans currently have in the legislature. So when you look at the map that this commission came up with in Ohio, what was so bad about this map that it got rejected? Well, it was clearly designed to favor the Republicans. One of the statistics and a very important statistic that the court looked at in Ohio was the kind of 10-year state average of how voters selected legislators. And over that period, Republicans got about 54% of the vote and Democrats got about 46% of the vote. But the map that the commission ultimately approved was one in which the Republicans were going to get at least 60% and maybe mm-hmm. 65 or 67% of the seats. Princeton has a something called the Princeton Gerrymandering Project, and they keep a very close eye on everything that's going on. And they give grades to the maps in each of the states. What, what uh, grade did, did this map get? This got uh, a grade of F uh, on the fairness scale. And wow. it said, you know, because it gave a strong partisan advantage to the Republicans. Huh. Well, then, so what happens now? Like, what? where does the process go from here? Do they just start from scratch? 
Well, they do. I mean, the court struck it down and said, in the case of the state legislative maps, you have 10 days to come forward with a new and acceptable map. That's where things stand at this point. The commission is is working at this, and they will have to produce a map that's acceptable. Mm-hmm. I mean, the one good thing about this process is that it gives the, the court, the Ohio Supreme Court, the ability to review these maps and see if they meet the tests from the ballot initiative that was passed by the voters. And in this case, the justices basically said, no, start over, go back to the drawing board. What does it tell you that this redistricting process in Ohio has become so political? And is that something that we can expect from these other states that are also going through this process right now? This is a highly political process. Uh, It always has been. And I think there's almost no way to fully remove politics from it unless literally you just give it all to citizens. And in some states, they're, they're working on that. But there are degrees of politicization and and efforts to reduce it are you know are fairly widespread but states are just getting used to this and politicians are loath to give up the power one mm-hmm. of the things about redistricting in addition to giving your own party an advantage it's a kind of an incumbent protection racket but it's a political process i mean there's you know there is a tremendous amount that rides on how the district lines are drawn and one of the things that that has happened over the many years that i've watched this process is that the computer technology has become more and more sophisticated and and more readily available to the people who are doing it so you can mm. you can do all kinds of tests by moving district lines one block or two blocks this way or that way and you can instantly see what that does in terms of kind of the you know the partisan divide in that district so it's a process that's given to manipulation mm-hmm. and politicians uh, are going to protect themselves when they do this so i guess in some ways do you see what's happening in ohio as a bit of a test case for what is happening in a lot of states around the country that even when measures are put in place that are supposed to moderate the opportunity for partisan gerrymandering, that people just find new or more advanced ways of doing it? I think the lesson out of Ohio is that the voters have a sense that this is a if not a corrupted process, a damaged process, and they want something that is fairer. But the question is, who designs the solution to that? And in the case of Ohio, the solution was imperfect. Now, it's possible because the Supreme Court has forced the folks back to the drawing board that these maps will end up to be more fair than they otherwise would have, and certainly more fair if there was not this process in place. But the ability to get to the point that people are hoping for, which is to say both uh, less partisan lines and more competitive districts, still mm-hmm. seems as though it's a long way away. And you know, this only happens once every 10 years, and then people forget about it. So we're going to see what this cycle produces, and then people will begin to look for other solutions and see what they can do in terms of ballot initiatives. The the final chapter of the Ohio maps has not been written, but it's a it's a lesson in how this can be manipulated unless people really draw it in the right way. 
What about the math option? Like, isn't there the option where you just like get the compute, you know, you come up with like a formula for the most fair way of doing it and you like just get the computer to spit out what it thinks is like mathematically the fairest apportionment and call it a day? That's a very interesting question. And what I would say to that is that there was a kind of a simulation done a few years ago that they selected a series of criteria upon which to make a set of maps. You know, one would be, you know, most competitive districts. Another would be the most districts that are, you know, are drawn contiguously so that you don't have, you know, these weird shapes. Another was the most in which you get kind of maximum minority representation. There, there are all kinds of criteria that go into people's sense of what makes a fair set of maps. Hmm. And what they found was that in every case, if you focus on one of those, the others fall by the wayside and they, hmm. you know, and you don't end up with something that you would say, well, that meets all of the tests. So you can't simply say, okay, you know, computer, draw me a set of fair maps because the question is, well, what is fairness? Hmm. Is it maximum minority representation or is it lines that don't look terribly, you know, weird? Now, interestingly, in this Ohio case, one of the expert witnesses who's a professor at Harvard um, came in and, and created a simulated algorithm to try to draw the maps. And he did 5,000 maps or sets of maps and said that what the commission had produced was the outlier, that there were 5,000 others that were less partisan <laughs> based on what they had done. So, um, you know, it, it, it took some work to do what they did with the Ohio maps. And, and uh, but you have to, you know, you kind of have to have human hands on there and you have to know what are the principal criteria? And and those can be different in each state. I mean, each state can, can if they create a commission, they can say, here are the two most important things that you have to do, or here are the three most, or here's the single most. And you can end up with different kinds of maps as a result of that. And what are the stakes of this when it comes to midterm elections in November? Well, the stakes are enormous because at this point you have a very closely divided House of Representatives. And if one party, and particularly if the Republicans, were to come out of redistricting with having essentially added four or five or six seats that are likely to go in their direction, that alone could flip the House of Representatives. Now, at this point, David Wasserman, who works for the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter, David is, you know, one of the leading experts on this and has followed it in minute detail, way, way more than I have followed it. Um, and his bottom line at this point is that there's going to be a little bit of a Republican advantage, but not necessarily as much as people might have thought at the beginning of the process. So that's one thing. But the other point that David has made is that as we have gone through this process this time, there will be fewer truly competitive seats than there used to be. And the number of 
competitive seats has been declining steadily uh, for a couple of decades. And the, the importance of that is that if these seats are not competitive, it means that the primary election is the most important election in determining who's going to hold that seat. And primary elections tend to be dominated by, by people on one end of the political spectrum or another, mm-hmm. um, so that it creates safe Republican or Democratic seats and makes those seats perhaps a little bit easier for somebody on the right wing or the left wing to be able to win them. Dan Baltz covers national politics for The Post. The story was produced by Renny Spernovsky. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 